Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Deepika Nagabushin, Program Director for Decarbonized Fossil Energy at Clean Air Task Force. Deepika leads CATF's Decarbonized Fossil Energy Program, which develops policy and advocacy strategies aimed at making carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies widely available globally by mid-century. This is a fascinating area because what decarbonized fossil energy basically means is instead of shutting down the coal plants, for example, it enables the coal plants to keep burning coal, but decarbonizing those emissions such that it can either be zero carbon or much lower emissions than it is today. This is, of course, a controversial topic and one where there's a big discrepancy of viewpoints, which makes Deepika's perspective and this discussion, super interesting. We cover a lot in this episode, including an overview of the work that they do at CTF and with the Decarbonized Fossil Energy Program. We talk about CCS, how it works, its history, where things stand today, where things need to go, and what some of the barriers are that are inhibiting its progress. We also talk about the role of startups versus the, the big strategics, oil and gas. We talk about the role of policy versus innovation. And we also talk about, just from an ethical standpoint, why Deepika feels such passion and fulfillment for the work that she does and what her message is to the critics who might say that this technology is a distraction or an excuse for fossil fuel to keep on burning. And uh, I think Deepika's perspective here is fascinating, and I learned a lot from hearing it. I hope you do as well. So without further ado, let's bring her on, Deepika Nagabushin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I had a good chat with your boss, Armin Cohen, uh, a few weeks ago. and He's the boss. Yeah, and he and um, and in addition to him, I, I talked to Steve Oldham from Carbon Engineering recently and Jim McDermott, who's on the board there, and uh, Noah Deitch from Carbon 180. So um, I think a theme that I've been exploring is the, the difference between reduction of new emissions and pulling out the emissions that are already there and and also um this whole concept of carbon capture and uh you know regardless of whether something's a bridge or it's a long-term solution the idea that for types of energy that do emit today given that at minimum it's going to take some period of time to transition the fact that if you do pull the carbon out then conceivably you could get it to net zero emissions as well. Um, so when I see your title of, you know, decarbonized fossil fuel, I think that's a super interesting topic to, at minimum, learn a lot more about. When I look at the title of decarbonized fossil energy, it's like, it's so obvious for me, but I have noticed this question come to me a couple of times uh, when people are like, wow, your title, uh, decarbonized fossil energy. That's so interesting. That's so new. And I'm like, what? Uh, this is this is kind of obvious to me. So yeah, I I love to talk more about this. And you're right. It's it's this thing that there's always this question about what do you do with you know emissions that have already accumulated in the in the atmosphere. And I think that that's where the whole negative emissions technologies and approaches come from. And then with decarbonized fossil energy, the the premise basically is that you know if you if you th- if you think about the emissions uh, globally, uh, emissions that uh, have happened. So 2017 to 2018, we had a lot of renewable energy that 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 was installed all over the world. Billions of dollars were spent on it. But all those emissions gains, if you will, like, like all the reductions were sort of just masked or canceled out by fossil energy use across uh, developing nations and, and everywhere else. So it's just that, you know, there is this growth in, in, in the world, the economic growth that we sometimes see decoupling, but sometimes we don't. Like, I think there was a period, a couple of years when, when we felt like there was a decoupling between growth and uh, energy productivity uh, or economic productivity. And there was economic productivity rose and energy efficiency and, and those kinds of approaches helped reduce the emissions. Uh, but then, just subsequent years change that and 
you you can't i think that there are that you need multiple approaches and uh, especially because fossil fuels are cheap and um are widely used by the whole world it's just a matter of we have a time limit on on meeting the 1.5 degree i guess climate target so it's it's just a matter of using as many technology approaches as possible to you know have new technologies that are clean and sort of prevent the carbon emissions from continued fossil use which we we if we don't because we don't have a magic wand to sort of stop that and and there aren't you know competing uh, technologies yet and that's our that's the that's the whole goal in fact let me just rephrase the one line answer to what decarbonized fossil energy program within clean air task force does is our job is to identify how or make this happen make decarbonized fossil uh, competitive from a cost point of view with fossil energy that's that's the that's the mandate that's the that's the goal uh-huh and and can you explain the difference between tr- uh, traditional fossil energy and decarbonized fossil energy uh fossil energy uh, you know is is our hydrocarbons that if you burn them you will emit co2 and decarbonized fossil energy is one um that is is when you use those fossil energy uh sources all all we care about in 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 the decarbonized version of the same fuel is that we don't let the co2 go into the atmosphere uh-huh and and how how do we prevent the co2 from going in the atmosphere so there are a suite of technologies called carbon capture and sequestration which you said you have been exploring basically we did this like a few decades ago with sulfur dioxide right the whole acid rain problem was because we were using coal that was emitting these uh, sulfur dioxide emissions and that was creating acid rain and what we did was we like okay let's take the sulfur dioxide out and it was scrubbed and it was sent through these solutions where the sulfur dioxide would get absorbed and then whatever would be emitted would just be without the sulfur dioxide so you've solved the problem with that in that way so it's a similar concept you would take the exhaust from these uh, emissions whether it's coming from power plants whether it's coming from heat that you're generating at industrial facilities anywhere that fossil energy is being used you can just simply scrub that emission that exhaust the flue gas um off the co2 and then whatever so the co2 is then taken away and then the re- remaining exhaust just goes into the as- atmosphere as as it would have uh just without the co2 uh-huh but it's far from trivial to do this both from a complexity standpoint and cost correct exactly yeah and that's that's the task at hand how do you make it widely available because that's that's the goal how do you make it cost competitive so that it is actually com- cost competitive for, you know that people would choose to use a decarbonized fossil fuel energy source versus an unabated fossil energy source that's the choice that you, you we need to make happen and why would anyone make that choice i mean is it is it strictly a cost choice or are there i mean obviously the bleeding hearts will do it because it's the right choice even if it costs more but realistically that's not how markets work at scale so i guess the people that are making that choice today why are they doing it and then directionally why would they be doing it if it's if it's going to really make a dent those are good questions so yeah we definitely want, i mean we live in a market we, like you said it's it's there is nobody who's going to do something that isn't fiscally right or financially right i mean there are other goals uh that some shareholders i guess impose on their com- on the companies but i think that the tools are basically um to get the costs down and also put regulations and policies in place that will encourage investment in those technologies i don't think that somebody i don't think that we can rely on people to do the right thing i'm just not sure that that's an approach i would bet my money on education is important for sure about environmental impacts of the things that we do but i think that making technologies available and it's i think that it's the role role of the government to to sort of push technology innovation and as it has always done and to make technologies available so that companies can adopt them and and create a push through regulations like emissions limits or incentives there can be a variety of policies that states and national governments can utilize to actually help adoption of these technologies. Uh-huh. And so but basically if if I'm hearing right there's fossil fuel that emits CO2 and then there's decarbonized fossil fuel that's pulling the carbon 
you're stripping the carbon out of the emissions that are that are happening at the at the point of of emitting. And so I think what what I'm hearing is that when that's pulled out, there's some complexity and costs associated with that. But the way that it would be more economical is some combination of then converting that CO2 into products that can be then gone and sold, as well as um, putting some type of price on carbon, meaning a tax on the uh, CO2 that's being emitted that is not being captured. Yeah, you're exactly right. So let's say it costs X dollars to capture a ton of carbon. You can either have all of that money initially as you're getting the government, as you're getting the companies to adopt this technology and to sort of get it to a point where it becomes market competitive. You know, the government can can fill that hole with incentives, that entire X amount. Or the other way is to sort of leverage a market opportunity that exists. And one of the largest market opportunities that exists today to sort of be a part of that whole fill the part of that hole is is enhanced oil recovery and enhanced oil recovery is when oil companies that are uh, that are producing oil from oil wells and a field is sort of depressurized because you've been producing oil for decades the volume of oil that is easily accessible is now sort of you're coming to a, to the end of that but there is more oil in there um so one of the things that oil companies would like to do is to get that oil out and one of the ways you can get that oil out is by injecting CO2 at really high temperatures and high pressures that would then mix in with the oil and um, oil would be produced because more oil from the same wells could be produced because of that. So that is a valuable activity that the oil industry will pay money for. Uh, They will want to buy the carbon dioxide. And now we have, now we know we have all of this waste and I'm using air quotes, waste CO2 that's just wing went, went into the atmosphere, which we don't want over there. Um, it's an, it's sort of an easy match, right? There's this extra CO2. Somebody can capture it and give it to the people that want to use it and want to pay money for it. So that's the market. Uh, and so that can, while that can drive some of the technology adoption, what we are noticing is that there's still gaps. And that's one of the reasons we supported and sort of uh, led the charge on on pushing for an incentive such as the 45Q that was passed in 2018, which gives, which practically puts a price on carbon, right? Like it, it, they say that there is this incentive. If you capture and sequester one ton of carbon dioxide that would have otherwise gone into the atmosphere, you're going to get $50 per ton. And then if you utilize it through enhanced oil recovery, you'll get $35 a ton. If you utilize it in other uh, mechanisms, like make it, make it turn it into fuel or turn it into plastics, you'll get $35 a ton. So there are these, uh, so that was a way for, uh, CATF thought that that was, a, that was like a, a very important step in pushing CCS forward. So now there's a price on carbon in a way and emitters can now find ways to, to leverage that incentive and, and, to, and find a way to capture that CO2 that they would have otherwise emitted. Now, how much of the way there does 45Q get us based on current technologies how much of the way yeah like does, it, does the math work with it with 45q paired with with um with the value that that the carbon can be sold for when it's converted to to products or is there still a gap so there so first of all uh i think carbon capture uh it's going to cost different there's going to be a diff, there's going to be different costs associated depending on where you're putting carbon capture systems. Like, is it going to be on a coal-fired power plant? Is it going to be on a natural gas-fired power plant? Is it going to be at a refinery? Is it going to be at an ethanol plant? All of these sources have different characteristics, different sources, uh, different concentration levels of CO2 in their in their gas emissions. So the cost that the capture equipment will will impose on, on a business wanting to capture will, will differ. And Hence, the impact of this 45Q incentive will will be bigger in some areas and and relatively smaller in other areas. So, say, for instance, uh, ethanol production, where the stream of CO2, the stream of emissions that come out is pretty pure CO2. It's so you you have to spend less money on separating it out or cleaning it up. And basically, you're spending, you know, so relatively, you're spending less money to capture the CO2 at an ethanol plant versus a coal fired power plant where, where you have to clean up the flue gas a lot more before you can actually strip the carbon out. So cost will differ. So the impact of 45Q is bigger at a a pure source CO2 facility like ethanol 
versus uh, a power plant. And the enhanced oil recovery uh, industry will pay depending on the oil price uh, at the time uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a fluctuating market. So those prices also sort of differ. And uh, depending on how far you have to transport the CO2 and all of those things, so these economics sort of differ in general by location and type of CCS and type of and where you're putting this the CO2 in the ground. So there there are going to be a, a a set of facilities that will look good economically with just that EOR price on carbon and the incentive from the 45Q tax credits. And but but I'm not it's not going to make every possible facility put CCS on. It's going to make some. Just ballpark, if you had to guess, what percentage of facilities uh, will be in the green get in today's conditions? Let, I don't know if I, I can get a percentage for you, but here's a study that we did uh, at CATF. So we studied power plants uh, in the U.S. We studied what impact 45Q incentives would have um, on the power plants in the U.S. So we saw 49 million metric tons being captured on an annual basis in the year 2030. And it, it came from about 45 units. Now, units are not plants. Uh, multiple units can exist in a plant. Uh, so 45 units were, fit, were, were retrofit. Now, I know that I can easily come up with a percentage, but I just I don't know what the denominator is of how many plants or how many units were, um, were in the green, as you asked. But I think it was a total of 10 gigawatts, 10 gigawatts of approximately 10 gigawatts of, of fossil fired generation that was then fitted with carbon controls. And then what are what are the criteria that, that make a plant a good fit to be in the green? And then when you think about levers going forwards, uh, what are the different levers we have to play with that can that can get a higher percentage of plants into the green over time? Definitely uh, the cost that it the cost per ton will, will will depend on just how difficult it is to strip the CO2. You know, sometimes when you're thinking about refineries, there may not actually be a single source of CO2. There may be multiple sources. So just how difficult would that be? Um, or which which of those sources are the highest concentrations? Like those kinds of choices will be, uh, imp- uh, you know, will determine the cost. And one other thing uh, that I've learned is that even just engineering design can change a lot. In fact, there are two uh, big coal-fired power plants that have CCS on them. One is the Boundary Dam power plant in northern the northern part of the U.S. And um, in Texas, there's Petronova. And each of those plants, they have different designs. Although they both are coal-fired power plants, they, they use different designs. And uh, they both have said something to the effect of, if they did this again, they could reduce uh, costs by about 30 to 60 percent between the two of them. And uh, all because they've figured out that they can uh, they can sort of engineer things differently. It's just it's just learning by doing. So just with that one plan, they're like, oh, we can fix this, we can change this, and the cost can come down. So those kinds of engineering choices can can also determine the cost. Yeah. So there are lots of factors that can that can uh, you know sort of help you determine which is a good candidate. And of course, proximity to where the CO2 is going to be stored. Mm-hmm. And it, I would assume it also matters what price you're getting for the products that you're converting the carbon to, and also what incentives there are. And if the incentives go up, then that's another way to bridge the gap, right? Right. Yeah. So like, for instance, let's say if there's a state that wants to, has this sort of goal that they, that they want to decarbonize their emission sources. And let's say they have power plants as uh, as one of the targets to reduce emissions from they, they they can look at 45Q and go like, okay, 45Q can give this much incentive. What's the gap left for these plants in our jurisdiction that we want to see carbon capture on? And then see how they can fill at the state level that gap. Or they can, or it, that is if they can't get the money that if, and if they can't get, you know, revenues for the CO2, or if that can be made possible, then you know, there are cost is not also the only factor that can make things happen. There are so many other factors as well, like like where 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 does the ecosystem exist now for 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 sequestration? Most of the so as from our report, what we saw was that all of the CO2 needed the EOR revenue to to be green, be in the green. So 
And we kind of tend to believe that in in the beginning, EOR revenues are going to play an important role. So the EOR infrastructure exists in specific locations. Like there's that Permian Basin and there are pipelines that already exist. So having a facility that captures CO2 somewhere around there or somewhere close to the pipeline infrastructure can can also make it a good, you know, that's that's a good thing. So you you can you know reduce costs of like building an entire network of pipelines right away. So there are low hanging fruits relative to things that can be harder to do, re- relatively speaking. Uh-huh. And I, I've heard, I don't really fully understand the nature of it, but I've heard some concern expressed from different voices in the climate community around EOR. Is that your understanding? And if so, what uh, maybe talk a bit about what's behind that. So I think that some of the concerns may come from the fact that it's counterintuitive on, on the surface if you think about wanting to reduce carbon emissions and also producing oil that we know is associated with more carbon emissions. So it looks like a funny idea, but the, the truth is that we, uh, so the best available science on life cycle analysis or life cycle emissions uh, comes from the International Energy Agency. They did a study in 2015 where they figured out that anthropogenic CO2, when used for CO2 EOR, has a net reducing impact. So if you say, I'm going to put a ton of CO2 in enhanced oil recovery, you can't just be like, well, there you go. I've reduced an entire ton of CO2. There are some offsetting factors that you have to consider. So like, you know, obviously you're using more energy to inject the CO2. So emissions from that energy that you need to inject that CO2 will need to be considered as an offset. You're probably producing more oil and probably more people are going to consume more oil. And you need to consider those emissions from those additional oil from the additional oil consumption. Now, the IEA actually figured when you look at it from the entire uh, life cycle and, you know, perspective, even considering all these additional emissions, you will, you'll not sort of mitigate, you'll not offset that entire ton that you injected. You will offset a part of it. So the numbers are, if you put a ton in, in EOR, the offset from these additional emissions is 0.37. So you get 0.63 as net reduction. Are there other categories besides EOR that are also compelling today? Um, I mean, I've heard talk of converting carbon to concrete or to using it for tires with carbon black or, or, or things like that. I mean, is any of this stuff more than a science project at, at this stage? I think that we'll, we'll probably need all of these ideas. I don't think that any of these ideas are, are any of those. None of them can be like, well, we'll dismiss this. It's not important. It's not it's not like that. But the, the role. But why EOR gets all the attention is because it's the largest possible market and it has the highest ability to pay pay money for CO2. And that's what we need in, in like in the near future to to kickstart the CCS industry, if you will, or the infrastructure that will be needed. The, so the IEA says, um, the, sorry, the IPCC, I'm sorry, I keep you, uh, confusing these. So the IPCC did a two degree scenario and they figured out that globally, of course, CCS was part of the mix in, in terms of what solutions will be applied. And their two degree scenario says that in the U.S. power sector, so not even not even just the U.S. like U.S. power sector, they need. Let me actually look this um, look at this number really quick for you. This is about you know 46 million tons of, of, of or 50 million tons or something like that. In that range is how much uh, you need to capture in the year 2030, and then you have to keep rising after that on an annual basis. These are really large numbers, and so. I don't think that there's, um, and I think that overall, um, the IPCC, the IPCC 1.5 degree scenario says that globally we need to capture between 350 billion metric tons cumulatively to 1.2 trillion metric tons. Now, I'm not saying that EOR can fill all of that need, and it can't. In fact, in ca- it can't. There isn't that much of available storage capacity within EOR, but it can do a large share of that. It can I think the IEA estimates about 140 billion tons and that's below the the low low number that we need to hit according to the 1.5 degree scenario so 1.5 is 350 to 1.2 trillion right so eor won't even meet the low end of that estimate total estimate so so the point is that even eor is not a silver bullet so that's why we need all the other other things that you mentioned the cement the plastics the all the other things. And of course, we need saline sequestration, which is when you don't even take anything out, you just put the CO2 underground. So th- that's the end game. And and is 
decarbonized fossil fuels, is that just focused on point of emission, meaning that something like direct air capture, for example, is completely separate and distinct? Or is there any overlap? Well, the overlap is the sequestration part. But yeah, because it's decarbonizing fossil, we're talking about emissions from fossil energy. And direct air capture isn't, it's emissions in the air. Yeah, it's, it's in, it can be anywhere. But the sequestration part is a common part. Okay. And and so there's a lot of voices in the climate community that say that we need to get off of fossil fuels completely as quickly as possible. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I would love to get off of fossil fuels. I don't know if we have the ideas to get to that tomorrow. Like it's it's such a hard thing. It's it's a hard problem to solve and and we don't have like I, there's so many it's such a big problem. I think that there are we obviously have renewable technologies that are growing in their share of electricity that they provide. And there's going to be cleaner uh, transportation. I mean, I, I think that I would love to see a world in which we are not using any fossil fuels, but I just don't know if that's something that we can dream about like right away. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm using a more pragmatic sort of perspective and saying that while that's, that's a nice to have, or that's a nice goal to have, I don't know if that's the approach we need necessarily to address climate change, because at the end of the day, like I said, the point is to keep the CO2 out of the air rather than to stop using fossil fuels. I I, I just think that they're not the same things. Okay, so is if we used 100% renewables, let's say, are you saying that 100% fossil fuel decarbonized fossil fuels would be no worse for the environment than if we got off of fossil fuels completely for the climate yes because we're talking of one we're talking only one metric here and that's co2 emissions okay so i mean are there other downsides then that that that, that we're not discussing that are important to understand the full picture there are you, you need regulations to do a lot more um you know there are i think every technology has all of these other things that you need to manage right like whether it's mining or you know regulations that that control mining or regulations that control methane leakage in oil and gas or how do we you know everything needs regulation to to make sure, to make sure that it's as environmentally safe as possible but right now we're talking about decarbonization we're talking about carbon emissions right but i guess what i'm confused about is people that devote their whole careers and and lives to decarbonization the majority of them, it seems like, proclaim boldly that we need to get off of fossil fuels. They're not proclaiming boldly that we need to decarbonize fossil fuels. They're saying we need to get off of them entirely. And I guess what I'm trying to poke at is if what you're saying is true, then why aren't they saying that we need to decarbonize? Because it seems like that's a an easier step than to get off of them entirely. So so what, what, am, what am I missing or, or what are they missing? I think that maybe they're worried about a lot of other issues we've had i guess you know I, I think people consider oil companies evil and then that's their it's an ideological issue that they have or i i don't know really why i i i'm not i don't want to speak for for the for those that want the want to uh, advocate for getting off of fossil fuels completely and as i said i don't think that that's a terrible idea but we just need other technologies to to ensure that they can serve those uh, needs, right? So we have energy needs, we have growing energy needs, we need energy at an affordable cost across the world. I'm just like, if there were other technologies today, we'd be doing that instead and getting off of fossil fuels right now. I'm just I'm just not sure that the the rate at which that renewables are growing, are we going to get there in time? Are we going to get to? And I don't think that. And I think that there are lots of studies that already uh, say that relying only on intermittent sources could be a bad thing for the electricity grid. And in fact, there are studies that also say that if you had a portfolio approach of using multiple technologies that had multiple different kinds of benefits, zero carbon technologies, you'd have you'd have decarbonized the, the energy system at a much lower cost. In fact, I think the this is again, I, I don't know which one it is, IPA, IPCC or IEA, I'm probably going to get it wrong. But I think it was the IPCC. Yeah, it says that if you did a scenario without, say, carbon capture and sequestration, you'd decarbonize the world uh, at a cost that's 138% more. 
than if you were to use technologies that are going to decarbonize fossil. I understand that it's difficult and that you don't think we'll get there in time. And so therefore, this can help as a member of the portfolio. Earlier in the discussion, you said that you would love to get off of fossil if you thought it was possible to do so in time. So I guess, why would you love it? Like, what is more attractive about being off of fossil than doing fossil with, uh, with carbon capture? It's one way to address climate change, I guess. But is it are they just equal? Are they equal? Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm still, I understand the practical realities of the fact that, that it's going to take us some time and, and that we need all the help we can get. But I, I'm still really trying to better understand the, the difference and the, and the downsides of, of, of CCS. You, you know, if we did have the time, like what, what, what is the, what, what, you know, where, I mean, it's bad emotionally because it's a fossil fuel, but is that, is that it just that it's bad emotionally or are there actual legitimate concerns. I think that what I meant by that was that I think I'd love it if it were practical, if that was an easy solution. That if but the truth is I don't actually care. I don't actually care what solution we use. I I, I think that the mat for me what matters is that we're able to do it affordably, uh do it in time and 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 get to that sort of carbon target. I, I really don't think that I have a preference myself as to like which one is better or like I don't know morally better or or even uh, for me it's a matter of what's practical what's fast and what can be done right now what technologies do we have so so I'm going to try to parrot back what I think I'm hearing just to make sure I, I I understand it which is that I think what I'm hearing from you is when the critics say by enabling the fossil fuel companies to use carbon capture that is going to disincentivize them from transitioning more rapidly to renewables, what you're saying is, who cares? Because as long as we get there, you know, you're not saying it will disincentivize and you're not saying, or, or no, you're you're not saying it won't disincentivize. You're saying whether it disincentivizes or not, it doesn't matter to me because to me, all that matters is we get there and I don't care if it's through 80% CCS or 20% CCS or zero CCS, as long as we get there as quick as possible. Is that right? That is exactly right. And the truth is, we, do, we have no way of knowing, is it going to be 80% CCS? Is it going to be 80% renewable? We have no way of knowing. We can do all the modeling we want. Things are going to change that we didn't predict. And, you know, it's the mix that we actually end up using by the time it's 2100. We, there is no, your guess is as good as mine. And we don't even need modeling to make a, make a guess. It's like, we, we won't, we have no idea. We have no idea. So why bother to transition to renewables at all? Because it's a tool. It's a clean energy tool. Why not? We have the technology. Well, because we're already burning fossil fuel. And so it's like an object in motion stays in motion. If we're already burning fossil fuel, if we could just do carbon capture, if, if what you're saying is true, then isn't that an easier path than trying to transition to other sources of clean energy? In, in many cases, it's an easier path. In many, in many locations, it's an easier path. In many geographies, the, it's the same case would be true for renewables in many places. I think that no, no, that we we can't rely on any one technology. I don't know why we keep wanting to have this one thing that will be doing all the work. Like, why do we have this attraction towards a silver bullet? I I just feel like that's, it's it doesn't it, it's not needed. It's it doesn't it's not what will help. That's not the criteria by which we will solve, or find the find the right approach to solving climate change. I think that having multiple options is always great and. As I said, in in some places, some tech, some approaches will will work better than the other. So I I I think so. For instance, I mean, this is a silly silly uh, analogy I'm going to give you, but this is how I'm thinking about it. I have a uh, I have a, a very crazy attraction towards water bottles. So I need and I keep buying new water bottles as and when I keep seeing like someone who has figured out a new new way of, you know, it's a cooler way like. I have one water bottle that tells me at what point in the day I need to have I needed to have drink drank that much water. So it tells me so I can track how much water I'm drinking. I have a water bottle that is shaped like an iPad so it can go in my bag. I have so I, I'm just like what I'm trying to say is that when there's a need, there isn't like one technology and we're done. Let's just never think about this problem again. It's You can't do that. You ha- People will constantly want to innovate and find new ways of solving the same problem over and over again, because that's that's what innovation is. And you can't just sit and say, yes, we figured it out now. And now we'll only deploy this one technology. 
that's not how you solve anything. If we can do that with water bottles, can you imagine how many kinds of water bottles there are? Everyone claiming to have solved the problem. Here's a one, here's one that fits in your bag. Here's one that doesn't, you know, that that reminds you. Here's one that connects to your iPhone. There's innovation in small in the smallest of things and solving trying to solve the smallest of problems, and people will continue to solve that problem because. They're like someone will will think that this is the problem to solve. So I think this it's the same thing with energy technologies. Why do we have to stop at any point and say we're done? Why can't we continue to innovate? So when it comes to decarbonizing fossil fuels, uh, how much of that is being done by the hydrocarbon companies themselves, and how much of that is being done by startups? And what is the nature of the relationships between the two? I am seeing that fossil fuel companies are. Uh, starting to innovate. I think I, I know that Shell has uh, started to in you know go into the clean energy business, like with renewables and electricity. Occidental Petroleum in the U.S. has you know invested in carbon engineering and net power. Uh, net power is is a you know natural gas powered system that that is based on the alum cycle. You know that. Okay. So they, I think they are starting to see that there is going to be a benefit. Some of the oil companies are seeing that there's going to be a benefit to sort of getting into this game, to being part of the new markets where they can survive by providing a service that is that makes them money and meets regu- future regulations, which will, you know, there will be future regulations that will, you know, help uh, reduce carbon emissions. I think that um, there are lots of startup companies. I know that there's apparently a lot of startups and I'm not familiar so much with nuclear, but uh, there's a lot of startups that are working on, say, advanced nuclear technologies that will em- generate electricity with no carbon emissions and solve a lot of the other issues of uh, traditionally uh, that, that we know of nuclear technology. Of course, there's, uh, you know, carbon tech that's picking up where people are working to find ways to convert CO2 into products, whether it's plastics or fish feed and proteins, you know, there's there's a lot of that technology that is being explored. So I think that there's um, sort of innov- innovation all around. I guess given where we are and where we need to get to, what are the biggest things holding us back? And then what is CATF's role in helping us get there faster and more effectively? So what is holding CCS back? Yeah. So, well, I mean, you're you're focused on decarbonizing fossil fuels. So, I mean, it sounds like there's only a small percentage of fossil fuel emissions that are decarbonized today. So what is holding us back from getting to 100%? And and then what is, I assume that when you look at your charter, but but I don't want to put, put words in your mouth, that, that you're picking off things that you think can help us help that transition occur faster and more effectively. But it, but if that's, if your charter is something different than that, then then I'd love to know what it is. No, our charter is, as I said, we, we have to make sure that decarbonized fossil is cost competitive with fossil and make it widely available. So wherever it is needed, it can be deployed. So to do that, we work on policy um, and, and we, we understand the technology. We understand business models that will make the technology deploy and then sort of figure out what the gaps are in making those business models a reality. And we tend to um, advocate for policies to fill those gaps. Uh, what's holding uh, CCS back at this point is uh we we just we we need we we i think we just started down the policy path with the 45q tax incentive california state has a lot of uh, programs uh one of them does incentivize the use of carbon capture and sequestration technologies uh the low carbon fuel standard that is they they uh they allow a pathway um to to reduce emissions through ccs they so um the i think that in general there's going to have to be more of a push from an incentive and policy side in the initial stages to get this technology deployed and to get the infrastructure needed built. Uh, so we'll, we'll probably need pipelines to connect sources and sinks. We'll need uh, better understanding and better sort of industry learning on sequestration, not just in EOR, but also in saline sequestration. This is where what I said earlier about, you know, just putting CO2 underground in brine formations like two miles deep or a mile deep um, and uh, storing it there. So so there's a lot of other barriers like, uh, you know, helping companies uh, get financing. So sort of, you know, maybe the government can do loan guarantees. And, you know, for instance, if some fossil fired power plants are 
wanting to to do CCS, sort of incentivizing them through, I don't know, um, giving them a, a, a contract for differences for their power. So like if they, you know, because they'll have to make up their their cost. And then, of course, more, most importantly, I think that the government can do some R&D spend on sort of getting some transformational technology development going um, invest in invest in new ideas that can that can you know bring some radical transformation in how we how we capture the CO two, how we decarbonize. So, what types of projects are you focused on on the policy side? We spent a few years on forty five Q, and then I st- I shifted my focus once that was done. I shifted my focus to California. So California was working on developing something called the CCS protocol, and that was sort of defining what companies would need to do. In order to be sort of, in order to certify that it that storage is permanent, you know, it would mean how do you select sites and how do you monitor and and so on. So that was something that CATF was involved in, and I was involved in personally to engage with the California Air Resources Board and and participating in the public uh, comment process there. Right now, uh, we're we're sort of trying to sort of go back to 45Q, and we're going to start to talk to companies to understand you know, how they're building their uh, projects, what, what what barriers they can continue to face. So I think for us, what's important is to still co- always keep keep our eyes on what the gaps are and then come up with ideas to fill those gaps. So that's what we'll be doing going forward. That's what my focus is right now. And if, if you look out at the landscape, who are the people or companies that are on the front lines with decarbonized fossil fuel that you think know the most about it and are doing the best jobs of pushing the innovation forward. So decarbonized fossil, now there's so many parts to it, right? Like there's capture, there's um, sequestration, there's utilization. So there's, I think, with in terms of enhanced oil recovery or utilization, I think that Occidental Petroleum is definitely the leader. They're the largest EOR uh, company. They have learned about it all from all their decades, like I guess 40, 50 years of experience. In terms of capture, I don't I don't know if there's one single entity that I can point to that has expertise in that because there's so many kinds of capture and I and I guess so many sources that you can put capture on. So I don't really have an answer for that. Sequestration, I know that there's one project, Archer Daniels Midland Ethanol f- facility in Illinois that captures CO2 and puts it in a saline formation in Illinois, which is um, you know, that's there's a lot of uh, government funding that went into that uh, project as well. So th- there's learning from from there that I hope will help other projects do that. For the people out there that are pushing to divest from fossil fuel companies, what message do you have for them or, or what are your thoughts on those efforts? I think that if you're divesting from fossil fuel companies, I mean, I guess the whole point is that you either you have found other avenues that can make money as much money for you and in, in which case i hope it's it's some some other uh, you know climate friendly energy economy that that you're investing in other than that i i just i mean i hope it's not i mean i i, I really I, if it's an ideological thing that i don't really have much to say because i don't think that i can make a difference there but i i think the the question i'm getting at is for people that say that they care about climate change and what we need to do is divest, I guess, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that you don't agree and and that the fossil fuel companies may be one of our best paths out of this jam is, is to lean hard into working with them as, you know, Im- important subject matter experts with big reach and resource and expertise to help solve the problem that in in many ways they Great. I think that if, if I mean, it's a traditional argument right, of, of divestment versus staying, which is which means you have a seat at the table and you can ask the companies to, to do the right thing or to to make the right investments. So, I mean, I guess I don't have anything new to say there. It's it's a traditional, you know, it, I guess it's it's a cliche now almost, it's, it, you know, yeah, stay and, and, and push as a shareholder or a stakeholder push companies to do uh, the right thing. And, and if there are technologies, you know, require that the companies spend on R&D, require that companies, you know, find ways to, to, to decarbonize. I guess given some of the withholding information and misrepresenting information and things that have occurred historically, I 
I, I, th- I mean, the way I think about it, you can think that that it was criminal what's occurred in the past, and still think that they're important partners for the future. Like it's it's not an either it's not an either or uh, situation. So they may well be important partners for the future, but I certainly understand why there's distrust. I understand this whole this concept of the distrust, but I I just don't know if that is relevant in in the space of like getting them to do the right thing. So the the tools at hand, I think, for us are our regulation, right? Am I going to uh, expect any corporation? Uh, let's and here in this case, it's the oil corporations. Am I going to expect them to just? act in good faith? Am I going to put my trust in them? Or am I going to expect that regulations are enforced, that there are right regulations that are enforced? So for me, I feel like while trust is, is, is and this whole emotional aspect of, of the conversation is an important thing to consider, but I just, from a decarbonization point of view, I just feel like the, the problem is really, really large. And I think that we need to focus on the right tools. And I don't know about trust, whether how, how I will use the trust or the feeling the emotional feeling that I have in this space. But for me, what I would want to use is, is tools that are like regulation and policy pushing the right kind of technology development so that these technologies are available. And at which point an economic decision is made. Well, we don't any longer need this technology that is polluting. We can use this, which doesn't pollute and is as cheap or is even cheaper or it looks good uh, in the world where there are incentives or a carbon price. I just feel like when you create that environment with making technologies available, incentives or penalties through regulation, you create an environment where those where you're forcing those choices. And that's for me, a, that's those are the kinds of tools I want to rely on rather than, you know, just expecting that that or, or not wanting to work with someone because I, whether I whether or not I trust them. I, I don't know. I mean, I, am I making sense? Yeah, I know what you're saying, that that if you're not going to not trust them, you shouldn't trust any uh, big multinational corporation and, and let policy and regulation do its job. But yeah, I think in a way that's what I'm saying. I, I think that those are the those are the right tools to use, is, is according to me. Mm-hmm. And so if you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact on uh, decarbonizing the global economy, where would you put it? How would you allocate it? Definitely R&D. Definitely R&D. In fact, I just read an article this morning about fusion, that they're beginning construction. And I know this isn't related to decarbonizing fossil, but it is related to climate. I mean, it's interesting because it's a technology that that sounds like fantasy, but they're <laughs> they're actually uh, building the, the, the plant in France. And apparently in the next 15 years, it could be real. But it's going to take 15 years. So I'm sure it takes a lot of money to get to that point with, with a whole new technology that people have been studying for years and decades. And so I think that and imagine I'm just saying I don't have again, I don't know much about nuclear. It's fascinating. Imagine if that works, how much of clean electricity we can have. So I just think that, like I said, R&D is where I would put that money. We need we need to think more, think harder about solving these problems with newer ideas of how we how we generate it energy in the world. That's what I think. And what if we take that a step deeper in terms of like where within R&D or what criteria and also is that investment in, you know, in, in government entities uh, for that R&D or the private sector? How, how do you think about that? I, I think, yeah, I mean, government led. Um, but of course, I think private sector participation is very important. That's one of the things that we do at CATF. Like we don't work in a vacuum. We We always engage with with the doers. In fact, you know, th- there's no point in, in in sort of just having this us versus them thing. It's we we engage with with businesses, understand their needs and gaps, and like what what would make what are the what are the economic issues that that they are facing to change their behavior, right? Understanding that requires that partnership, and then we figure out what we need, what we can do to fill those fill those gaps. So I, I think, yeah, I I, I think that public-private partnership is important. But yeah, we, we, we still need to learn more about newer technologies or develop further our technologies, make better right, carbon capture technology, better, make it so cheap. I, I mean, what if what if we made made carbon capture and storage technology so cheap that we, we didn't even need EOR anymore? We just went directly to 
Um, I mean, of course, we, we, I don't think that in reality we can skip the EOR phase because we need the private money to help build the industry out. But at one point we can say, well, we're done. We'll just, it's so much cheaper now to just inject it in saline formations and we're going to get incentive from the government to do that. You know, that's a world that I would love to have reached, which I think is possible. This isn't really far. I don't think that this is a fantasy. This is definitely a very logical outcome of, of how, how I think we can, we, I mean, it, it can be a very possible, it's a possible thing. And that's what we're working towards. And for anybody who's listening to the podcast, who's, uh, you know, concerned about climate change and wants to f- figure out how they can help in the most impactful way, maybe just talk to them for a minute. What advice do you have? I think that it comes down to electing, you know, representatives that will commit to solving this issue and will commit to developing policies that will address this issue uh, in the right way and will commit to being open to a whole bunch of technologies. I think that first, even just the, the people that are listening to this podcast need need to acknowledge that we, we will need multiple technologies to solve this humongous problem and then sort of hope that their their elected officials will be, will also be open and will design policies and regulations in such a way that it can incentivize us to solve this problem. So that's, I think that's my simple answer to that question. Okay, great. Well, I'll tell you, I really enjoyed this discussion. I think that you also bring quite a different perspective than we've had on the podcast before, even though we've had Armand on already from, from CATF, I think this, this discussion covered some new ground for sure. So it, uh, it's definitely going to get people talking and hopefully no matter where people come out, on this issue, I think listening to this episode will help them get make more informed decisions and have more informed opinions, which is exactly the, the goal of the pod. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.